0: Welcome to Media Path. I am Louise Pelanker
1: and I'm Fritz Coleman.
0: And it is our honor and privilege to be your tour guides today as we venture down a path lush with freshly blooming media. Our guest coming up is the great and gifted comedian Dwayne Perkins, whom you may have seen all over your streaming media or on stage in your own town back in the olden times of public gathering. So get yourself seated, pour yourself a two-drink minimum, and you won't even need a friend to make a lovely toast to our health and happiness. But first, Fritz, what have you been enjoying media-wise this week?
1: I got a couple of cool things. I have one book and one movie. The first is a Netflix film called The Dig. Yep. This stars Carrie Mulligan and Ray Fiennes. It's based on a true story from 1939, and that true story gave birth to a novel by John Preston that this film is Based on it's about large burial grounds in Suffolk, England, which are the site of two medieval cemeteries. And they're part of a property inherited from her deceased husband by Edith Pretty, who's played by Carrie Mulligan. And she decides to hire an archaeologist, Basil Brown, played by Rafe Fines, in mm-hmm. order to see what's in these mysterious mounds. And that's all I'm giving away, but the dig which is a a term for an excavation site, contains an amazing treasure trove of historical items. It's beautifully shot, just amazing cinematography. It's a quaint and it's a thoughtful story at a time when I I need me some more quaint and thoughtful as opposed to dark and threatening. Uh, And I love it because it's a true story. I love the way it makes us remember that all humans are connected to all mankind back through the ages.
0: Right and it's also the dig this the time period I'm hope I'm not giving away too much is it's happening on the brink of World War II in 1939 in Great Britain. So it's the urgency to retrieve from the earth what may be there before all is destroyed is is present as well and yet it's a very still and thoughtful film.
1: Yep. And it's an acting masterclass. I could yeah. watch Ray Fines do a Portuguese translation of a Dr. Seuss book and be happy because <laughs> the dude is, I wish he did more films. He's really great. Yeah, he's wonderful. How about you?
0: Oh, what have I been watching? Okay, so I found a lovely path intersection paved by Laura Ingalls Wilder, a Ooh. fine pioneering woman who grew up in a series of Little House books. We begin with the book. So first there's a book about Laura Ingalls Wilder. Uh, it's called prairie fires the american dreams of laura ingalls wilder and it's by caroline Fraser. This is the first comprehensive historical biography of Laura Ingalls Wilder, the beloved author of the Little House books. Millions of readers of Little House on the Prairie believe they know Laura Ingalls Wilder, the pioneer girl who survived blizzards and near starvation on the Great Plains, and the woman who wrote the famous autobiographical books. But the true saga of her life has never been fully told before. So now, drawing on unpublished manuscripts, letters, diaries, and land of financial records, Caroline Frazier, the editor of the Library of America edition of the Little House series masterfully fills in the gaps revealing the grown-up story behind this influential childhood epic of pioneer life. She also chronicles Wilder's tumultuous relationship with her journalist daughter, Rose Wilder Lane, setting the record straight regarding charges of ghostwriting that have swirled around the books over the years. So daughter Rose is described in this book as instrumental in getting her mother's work edited and published, but her personality presents here as a challenging brew of bipolar and borderline personality disorders with generous helpings of depression and narcissism. After years and years of struggle and bare subsistence, the death of her parents and the Great Depression finally spur Laura in her 60s to capture and hold the strength and spirit of her family in the pages of her books. The stories soften the difficult and desperate edges of her hard, scrabble, rootless childhood by depicting danger and hardship as adventure and perseverance and as a celebration of the pioneer spirit. And much like Laura's Little House books soften her history, so too does the PBS American masters look at Laura Ingalls Wilder. So I, I recommend that you read the book first, and then watch the PBS American Masters. Daughter Rose is depicted here as more eccentric than mentally ill. And the Little House books are more a version of the truth than a rewriting of personal history. But it's still fun to watch the book come to life, visit the various homesteads, all now museums, and hear historians and readers who treasure these books talk about them in depth and with so much love. And so-
1: Let me uh, ask you a question. I'll tell you that. Was Little House on the Prairie the first time that her- Work was translated to television.
0: Yes, so it's this crazy story. So the first book in the series is actually Little House in the Big Woods, but Little House on the Prairie may be the next one. But what happened was her daughter Rose inherits this gold mine of that. You know, ironically, her good daughter trying to be a writer her whole adult life and finally strikes it rich off of her mother's writings. But she's like this kind of crazy political uh, libertarian, like fiercely. Uh, at odds with everything democratic. And she kind of like has this court of young people around her who also adhere to her kind of odd political beliefs. And she winds up bequeathing it to this one strange dude, libertarian dude. And he's the guy who like in the seventies sold the rights to the series to uh, a guy named Ed Friendly, who got involved with Michael Landon or Michael Landon got Michael Landing mm-hmm. got involved and pushes Ed Friendly out. And anyway, the Little House series uh, then takes off. Very cool. Yeah, but it didn't happen until the 70s.
1: Yeah, that was a huge show, number one on primetime television for mm-hmm. five or six years. And then they years. go
0: ahead and take poetic license with the whole story as well. They have the whole family living the entire time in Walnut Grove when actually Charles Ingalls was pretty itinerant. He was moving constantly and he was never really able to put a farm together that was able to sustain the family because there were just so many problems. It was locusts and you know, dust and heat and uh, yeah, it was, it was a rough life.
1: Very cool. And when's the American Masters series, or has that been on already?
0: Um, I think you can find all of this stuff if you get like a streaming service to all of the PBS documentaries, which I have. So I would say just kind of like yeah.
2: mm-hmm.
0: speak it into your remote and see what it, yeah. what's available to you. The other thing I, I like to do to find something is if you just Google the name of something, it will usually tell you where you can watch it.
1: Mm-hmm. Good point. Well, my second suggestion is about a hero of mine, Mike Nichols. And there's a great new book about his life called Mike Nichols: A Life. It's a biography written by Mark Harris. Now, Mike Nichols, a, a brilliant comic, a film and theater director, a producer, and actor, he's won everything: Oscars and Tony's and Emmys. And he was a wonderkin. He was in his twenties when he had that run on Broadway in evening with Mike Nichols and Elaine May. He directed his first Neil Simon play, Barefoot in the Park, in 1963 when he was 32. He was 35 when he directed one of the most complicated pieces of theater turned to film, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf with Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton. 36 when he directed The Graduate, one of the greatest films of all time. By his mid-30s, he had a three-story penthouse on Central Park West, drove a Rolls-Royce, and included among his friends Jackie Kennedy, Elizabeth Taylor, and Leonard Bernstein. Oh. I, I mention this not to say that all those trappings are what makes someone successful. It's just a sign of how brilliant this guy was yeah. at such a young age. And he went on to direct Carnal Knowledge and Silkwood and Working Girl, The Birdcage, which was written by Elaine May. He directed Tony Krishner's masterpiece Angels in America for HBO. This is a wonderful book, especially if you have curiosity about this brilliant man. It's not always a pleasant picture, but it's honest. It's filled with success and failure. Nichols always craves stability and security and status, probably having to do with his father dying when he was 12 years old and they escaped Nazi Germany in the uh, early 30s. He was always a lonely outsider. He had serious bouts with depression and self-medication. It's a great piece of work, Mark Harris's book, about one of the great minds of American movies. And Harris interviewed about 250 people, including a lot of your favorite stars for this book. Really a fantastic read.
0: And there's also an HBO uh, documentary on Mike Nichols now that I have not yet seen. but I Yeah,
1: and then to there was also... Uh, uh, an American masterpiece, a PBS yes. special about him as well. He's just—he's a brilliant guy. One of those people that just um, uh, has conquered so many different playing fields.
0: Yes, and I, love I have the one guy. more American masters to tell you about. All right before we introduce our guests, this one is called uh, Marion Anderson: The Whole World in Her Hands. This installment of American Masters tells the story of legendary contralto, Marian Anderson, a ground shattering African-American woman who became an international sensation in the early 20th centuries and in her quiet, capable and dignified way, she carved a vision of the civil rights movement in the 1930s. Marian Anderson was honored as the first African-American to sing in the White House And when she sought to perform in Washington's Grand Constitution Hall, owned by the Daughters of the American Revolution, she was refused because of her race. So First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt was appalled by the ban and resigned her membership from the Daughters of the American Revolution in protest. Answering this racial assault, the FDR administration invited Marian Anderson to sing from the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. These images are now iconic. On Easter Sunday, June 9th, 1939, Marian Anderson performed what has justly been called the concert heard around the world before 75,000 people and millions more over a live radio broadcast. The concert had a profound effect on the country and on a 10-year-old Martin Luther King Jr. who heard her on the radio. He went on to invite her to sing at his March on Washington 24 years later. So the announcement that her image will be joining Martin Luther King Jr. and Eleanor Roosevelt on a newly designed $5 bill that has reawakened her story and interest in her life. So hopefully those $5 bills are coming and also Harriet Tubman on the the 20, which is what I would really like to see. So now Dwayne Perkins is an American stand-up comedian from Brooklyn, New York, currently residing in Los Angeles. He has appeared on Conan, Comedy Central, and as a regular correspondent on The Jay Leno Show. In August 2012, he was selected by Rolling Stone magazine as one of their five comics to watch. So, hey, Dwayne. welcome, Dwayne.
2: Hey, thank you for having me. That was a that was a pretty uh, nice intro. Uh, it's good to be here, guys. And uh, we, 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 we all go way back. So it's yes. really nice to be here with you. Yes,
0: we are Laugh Factory, uh, I guess, graduates. Right. <laughs> right. Yes. And so what I want to know from you, it's like my first question out of the gate is like, what makes a person funny?
2: That's a really good question. I, I think because there's so many different ways to actually uh, execute being funny, <laughs> I think it comes down to just, a, uh, just an innate understanding of the truth and of yourself, how you fit into that truth. You know, I think even a little when you're like in second grade and you, you fall down to make someone laugh or you you make milk come out of your nose. It's there's something there about the timing and knowing how it's going to affect people.
1: Mm-hmm. And as
2: you grow older, it's just a matter of kind of being the first person to um see the holes in things. You know, not mm. that not that every comic and every form of comedy needs to be sort of like pointing out the truth. But there's always some anything funny usually has some has some kernel of truth in it. Even a person slipping on a banana peel. Because the truth of that is that uh, sometimes we celebrate people falling down. <laughs>
0: our, our, our imperfections can be amusing. Right. And also, sometimes it's like something subtle that you see in a child, like the raise of an eyebrow or the or the understanding of sarcasm. Uh,
2: exactly. You know, like exactly.
0: the, like the earlier your child says something sarcastic, the funnier she's going to be.
2: <laughs> that is a thousand percent true. I remember um, when I was in sixth grade. I did a performance of The Wiz. <laughs> I played the st- Scarecrow, and the, the Wiz is obviously sort of like the uh, black sort of uh, version of Wizard of Oz, right? Sure. And um, just we were we were rehearsing, and like the girl who was playing Dorothy came out too early, <laughs> and then and so like she came out, and the the like the Tin Man and Scarecrow weren't there, and I remember saying um, I just said something like. What, did you go to Oz by yourself? <laughs> <laughs> and the other kids laughed. And I just wasn't a joke I don't think most of my my classmates would have made. You know what I mean?
0: Oh, sure. No, for sure. They would not have. Right. That was fast.
1: And that laugh was good to you.
2: <laughs> yeah, and, and the laugh was good to me as well. And um, I think that's that's a lot of it, too, Fritz. I'm glad you mentioned that. There is an element of we can all be funny, just like we can all sing, but we all can't be Robert Streisand, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's a matter of talent and wanting to be well, I'm sure I saying? like working at it to be that good. And once you get your first laugh, you know, I remember being in a bodega in Brooklyn and uh, you know, I, I bought something from my grandma and I smiled and I think the guy in the bodega said something like, you know, your teeth are so white, which was, you know, maybe I, I, I was decent at brushing, even though I had, you know, admittedly, I, I've had some like as a kid, it was up and down. But this was—it uh, was-, <laughs> was a good week. Yeah, yeah. And he said, "Your teeth are so white." And this was—I uh, wasn't trying to be funny. This is just me being completely honest. I said, "Yeah, but my gums are black," and everyone laughed. <laughs> and then I was like, "Then you learn. Oh, sometimes you're funny when you're not even trying to be funny. Just the truth of something." So, God. I remember every time, like when I would make people laugh, it would—yeah, there was a rush there. And then. Um, But I didn't think of being a comic right away because, you know, you just don't know, you know, you go to school, it's like you want to be a police officer, a fireman, you know, like no one. There's no uh, comic coming into school when you're young, you know, so
0: (laughs) it would make school more entertaining if that happened more often.
2: It would. It would. And I I remember as as a as an Angelino, I I went to a high school once and I was kind of cool talking to the kids. Oh, you did. Yes, yes.
1: Um, you know, uh, you you have a quality over and above your humor, which is fantastic. I I recommend people watch your dry bar special. But you have a quality, and, and that is, and I attribute the same quality to people like Carson and people like Arsenio Hall, which is you are you have a great warmth. Uh, uh, your, your character on stage, which is just an extension of your character in real life. You have a great warmth. So I'm already in your tent before you start giving me your life philosophy. <laughs> I always thought that was Arsenio's greatest talent. And I mean this with the greatest respect because he's my friend. But if you looked at his act written out on a piece of paper, it would not make you laugh like S.J. Perlman would make you laugh. Right. But he's so... Warm and so inviting on stage that he just wins you over before he opens his mouth, and I really think that you have that quality too. You're so comfortable on stage, and it's a it's a huge plus for you. That's something you can't teach people. It just comes out of your natural chemistry.
2: Yeah, thank you, thank you so much. And and to, you know, Arsenio was one of my guys growing up, and and still is. And so that's a that's a great compliment. I think, yeah, when you watch Arsenio, and you know that. I guess in his history, he was raised in a church. He was a magician. And I don't know if some combination of all these things, I think he's a drummer too. It just leads to his timing and his comfort. And I think, um,
1: looks like he's having a good time. He's always smiling and you just can't not like him.
2: Exactly. And it goes back to a lot of, I, I relate a lot of things to sports. Not that I was like a super athlete or anything, but sports can be such a metaphor for life if applied correctly. And I think, you know you can know you can you can know how to play a game and you can know the x's and the o's and there's always this sort of other element um of timing of knowing when to break the rule you know you know and i think my likability is something that i accept i'm really happy about it but sometimes i i sometimes it does trouble me because because i'm like am i is this joke that funny or is mm-hmm. it just you shouldn't look, look giftos in the mouth, but sometimes, you, you know, you want
1: to be like, is this 50% of it is whether they like you or not. You, you should be glad right. you have that. And the truth about it is you can't manufacture that. Right. Uh, if people have a, a, an innate sense that you're creating some character for their benefit on stage, but you're not. You're very real. And I think that's the approachable part of it.
0: But if I could say from reading through your book of essays, Hot Chocolate for the Mind, where you don't see – a likable person on the stage you're simply just reading the words you do have a real gift with language Mm -hmm. and it's a ton of fun to read to read just like it's like you're like I'm following you through your day and all of the things that you that would get a raised eyebrow out of you you're pulling out a notebook and 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 you're writing about and it's it's just really enjoyable
2: oh thank you so much and that was um yeah that was the goal and I think the title is a play obviously on the um chicken soup for the soul books sure. um you know that that book basically is like um it goes back to i started a blog in the uh sometime in the arts i think that's what we call it the arts <laughs> yeah right? well now
0: we are sure and- <laughs> not during them but you know in retrospect uh, why not
2: yeah and um it was on myspace that's how that's how far back it goes and uh i just remember people i didn't know what Oh, you know where it started, too, is um, David Sedaris is one of oh, yeah. my um, favorite authors. Yes. And, like, I've read, you know, like, it's, a, it's so great to hear you guys talk about books. I don't think people read enough. And I certainly, in my formative years, did not read enough. I read what was assigned. and I read a little bit for enjoyment, but as an adult, I try to read a lot more. I'm mm-hmm. sort of backfilling.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: um, I remember reading David Sedaris and, like, laughing out loud, like, yeah. I was comedy show and i just couldn't believe like i didn't think that level of gut-wrenching laughter was was possible um and with my with, with high Chocolate for the mind i'm not necessarily going for that but he, he definitely inspired me to just to so that's why i started a vlog and um then like i i was pretty consistent about it and realized oh i can sort of like amass these and this is this will be my first my first book You know, it's a
0: collection of essays.
2: Yes. Yes. And it's basically, you know, we're all we're all stand ups and we're close to stand up. And it's kind of like some things are like people need to hear this, but it's not exactly something I can do on stage, especially in American comedy clubs where people are ordering drinks and there's, there's check drops like this isn't quite hard hitting enough. But I think people would enjoy this story. So those kind of things end up being in my blog and and some of them made it, made it to the book.
1: Did you start in New York? Uh,
2: You know, technically I did technically. um, But what happened was I'm from New York. I started in New York and started in Harlem and in the village a little bit. I was still in college back then. And so I was kind of kicking around still basically an open micer. And then I moved to Boston because I got a job in Boston. So, Basically, I became a pro in Boston. Like I Another great a, comedy oh, market.
1: So a lot of very
2: yes yeah, people develop. came out of it. I became a pro and a man, quote unquote, a man-man in Boston, I
1: feel. <laughs> well, those East Coast audiences like New York and Boston, you, you, you had to be a gladiator. You had to be good. The audiences are very discerning. Right. and All of my heroes came out of that um, Petri dish. There.
2: absolutely absolutely and what i love about boston as new england in general is um some people say if you start in the midwest the the hub is bigger you know like if you live in chicago for instance and you start doing comedy the hub is like maybe a four-hour circle places once you once you get good enough to be sort of uh a host or a opening act that's the hub new england it's it's sort of like because that's where, you know, we populated first, uh, you know, the Europeans populated mm-hmm. first. It's basically, the hub is a lot smaller. So within everything is an hour, hour and a half, two hours max. Mm-hmm. And what's great about that is you get, you get the city crowd, you get that hip city vibe, and just like an hour less than that, it's like a road room in the middle of, you know, like uh, akin to like what it must feel like to perform in the Midwest. And so you get both of those experiences. I think it makes you a lot <clears throat> a lot stronger, um, and and the thing about Boston is also the crowds don't. It's a weird, it's a weird thing because so many people. In, I I personally think Boston produces the funniest people, even not even comics, just just people in life, like the the cab driver, or the lady at Seven Eleven. Like they're all hilarious. They're all super sarcastic, quick witted, and when you're on stage in Boston somehow the audiences, they know you're doing jokes and they're perfectly okay with it. And so that means the comics can go for the kill. Whereas like New York is like that, but you kind of make have to make it conversational. So going to Boston was a great place to blend like a conversational style with just like, just murdering with, with the, you know, really tight written jokes.
1: Do you think that has to do with how, close all those cultures are the african-american the irish culture everybody's jammed into a smaller space up there
2: and oh, so yeah.
1: humor is a defense mechanism for lots of minorities up there
2: absolutely yeah you have the the irish uh the irish humor the italian humor the, the jewish humor and it all blends in kind of really nice and what's great about boston is it's still a little repressed you know like i tell people <laughs> In New York and L.A., it's kind of like everything goes, right? So if you want to dress like a chicken in L.A., you can dress like a chicken. No one's, you don't even have to be handing out flyers. You can just be like, this is what I do. I dress like a chicken. No one's going to bat an eye. Same thing in New York. In Boston, you can't dress like a chicken. (laughs) So so if you want to dress like a chicken or whatever that thing is in you that makes you want to do that, you have to address (laughs) that, and it comes up a different way. So all that, all that repression creates like comedy in a sense, you know?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a nice, it's a, it's a, it's fuel or it's right. like right. alchemy. I don't know, but I was watching your special uh, take note, which is yeah. you could stream it. And I don't, I did not know this about you, but your mother is 15 years older than you. And I'm yeah. wondering at what age did you recognize that this was something you could leverage?
2: Uh, you know, what's crazy is that, um, you know how it is when you go on stage, they, they want you to write, like, especially when you get to LA, when you're in Boston, you're just up there trying to be funny. You're trying to survive because those Boston guys are so funny. You're just trying to not drop the ball as it were. Mm -hmm. Then you come to LA and it's like, you know, what's your five minute sitcom set? You know, they, (laughs) they want you to bring the situation to the situation comedy, right? Sure, sure, sure. And so that joke, I realized I wasn't talking about it that much. I was at the improv one night and I was like, I really don't have this five minute thing. I mean, I have some jokes about myself, but I really don't have this thing. So I kind of like wrote that joke on the fly and then, you know, kind of uh, enhanced it. So it was in that moment where I, I knew I could, where I, you know, I I'd make it a part of my act. Cause mm-hmm. I typically don't, don't think to mind those things. Not, not like, in such a direct way only because then you have to sort of like, now you're, you're bringing other people in and are they okay with it? It turns out that, that that's one of my favorite jokes though. So that kind of works.
0: Yeah. Cause um. I, am just picturing you as a kid at a certain point, recognizing like, you know, my mom is also a kid. <laughs> so yeah. she better not try and tell me
2: right, what's right. up. It, you know, I, I knew it. It's weird. I knew it instinctively. I knew it because of how I would try to test her, you know, okay. like, like, I'm a nice guy, but I think I would push her buttons. And um, and I wouldn't push my... Her younger sister, my aunt, I wouldn't push her button. I wouldn't push my grandmother's buttons, my father's buttons. But something about my mom, she's so kind and tolerant mm-hmm. that um, the the little rascal in me would mess with her and, and try to get her upset, kind of. Which is kind of... I feel bad that I did that. And then she <laughs> would... Um, you know, back then you could hit kids, but she hit like a girl, you know? So... <laughs> When, even if she hit me, I would laugh. So it was just a, it was just all a riot. She would like punch me with this part of her fist. The, oh, no. the, and so I say all that just to say, like maybe, maybe even as a small child, I understood her, her youth. I'm not sure, not definitely not consciously. And then when I got to be in public school, and she'd come to school, it would, it would always be, that's your mom. And then I was like, what are you guys talking about? That's your mom. And I, a lot of that. Yeah. Then I started to notice like men who I didn't, especially I didn't think they were that much older than me. And they would give my mom the eye. Okay. Around, around 10, 11, 12. I see guys sort of like hitting on her. Right. That, that's problematic. You that's know uncomfortable. I mean? <laughs> sure.
1: <laughs> right.
2: <laughs> so, um, but it, yeah, you know, it's weird. It's like, and on, on one hand, I, I thought that she, I sensed that she was young. But on the other hand, I I think I've never fully took that for granted. Like, I've, I've always acknowledged that in those 15 years, that's 15 years of wisdom of doing things. So I do, you know, try to give her props, you
1: know? Right. Do you have brothers or sisters?
2: I do, yeah. They're all younger. Like, um, they're basically 11 years younger than me. And that's the, the next one is eleven years younger. Then after that, there's a few more. So, yeah, it's like a weird thing. I'm, I'm I have an only child experience. Right. I, I have siblings, but we're siblings, but we have a kind of uncle relationship too because I'm so much older than they are.
1: Right. So, so did, did did um did you do what many comics do, which is realize that you have power over your parents? with your ability to make them laugh. That was the only way I could disarm my mother and father and take them out of their low grade depression all the time was to get them to laugh. And I knew that I, that was the one thing I could use to sort of manipulate their mood to my advantage. Did you have anything like that in your family?
2: A little bit, a little bit with my mom, I would say I had that, but it's even stronger. I saw my mom do that with my grandma, uh-huh. you know, because my grandma um, who, who raised me um, was like very kind, very supportive, like just all about me. Uh, everyone will tell you I was a favorite and all of that. <laughs> but at the same time, she's not a touchy-feely. She wasn't a touchy-feely person, like didn't like to be touched, uh, you know, incessantly. You know, she wasn't like crazy with it, but you know, mm-hmm. didn't like too much of that and had a, a facade that seemed kind of serious. But my mom, could make her cry laughing <laughs>
1: and, oh that's great
2: yeah and almost on command whenever she wanted to she could do that and uh and then so that that kind of brought me into the fold and I saw that superpower and even that even strengthened my draw to comedy you know i was making people laugh at school then i see my mom who definitely could have been a comic mm-hmm. um and she's very like all the qualities i have she has um and it's just so recently because for the longest time i thought i kind of like had this vision that my dad was super smart super intense and i always figured i got my smarts from him and my comedy from my mom now i'm realizing it's like it's not that simple
1: mm-hmm. but
2: um yeah my, i would still I, I would still say i probably got my comedy from my mom she just has a very natural timing to her very natural. it's a big
1: victory to make her laugh too i'm guessing
2: it is, it is, it is. But I, I mean, I can do it. We have such a similar sense of humor. It's really, it's really cool to have your tribe. Like you say, you you made your parents laugh, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I can I can hear a song in LA and know, oh, my sisters love this song. Mm-hmm. You know, my yeah, mom yeah. would song, that kind of thing. Right. And her laugh is super important. I think I got by, by being good in school. Like I offset being bad in school with being, like I got good grades but bad behavior. I don't but, know.
0: I, I I'm guessing your behavior was more kind of mischievous than bad.
2: Uh, no. I mean, it was bad. <laughs> no, 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 not not after after grade six. I think I, everything was kind of cool. But I'm like my early early years. No, it was like I was like fighting every day. You know?
0: Oh, okay.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And fighting teachers and it was not good. Bad-ish. But that was, but that's the comic in me too, right? The kind of like, I think I'm right, so I'm not going to back down. And then okay. you have to like, sort of like be right and how do you, how do you demonstrate that you are quote-unquote right? And I think comedy came in, in handy there too, learning how to sort of like disarm people, speak your truth without it being a thing.
1: And yeah. fighting is just another way to gather an audience too.
2: That's true. That is so true. But... uh <laughs> I lost too many of those fights.
1: <laughs> yeah. I, I, I mean, avoided them. That's where I, I mean, I mean they're both them. weapons, right? So
0: yeah. if you you learned quickly that the, the more useful weapon or the more constructive weapon, if there's such a if that's not too much of a conflict of interest, but the more constructive weapon is your wits, right? Who are your stand
1: up heroes, Wayne?
2: Oh, you know, that's a great question. I have so many. I think, you know, I always tell people George Carlin is my favorite.
1: Me too. <laughs> yeah.
2: Even though you know I, I will concede that like Richard Pryor is the sort of consensus best comic ever George Carlin is right under him I think and he's my personal favorite I,
1: I bet I, that that's why you have you're so good with language because that's what I loved about Carlin there's nobody that did these flights of fancy with interesting words better than him and I I, I think you and I probably appreciate him for the same reason
2: absolutely and you know it's crazy as um so much of like what i liked about him i didn't even understand it until i became a comic you know mm-hmm. in terms of the language um but uh, i'm also you know eddie murphy was such a superstar coming up that he everyone just gravitated toward him i think as much as colin showed you how to do it at least me eddie murphy showed you that it could be done you know because mm-hmm. he was so young and came out the gate so fast right. but also like I love I love so many guys, Franklin Dye, Richard Jimmy, you know, there's just so many. And then current guys too. Um Patrice O'Neill, who passed away, was a good friend of mine. Oh, he was wonderful. Incredible. Yeah. So yeah, I like, I like, I mean, Bob Newhart. I love his timing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think uh Yeah, I I in the 80s I was like really, you know, I was younger, but I was like Seinfeld, like I knew who Jerry Seinfeld was before he had a show. You know, yeah, Like I knew even the guys who were on like evening at the improv, I knew a lot of those guys. Still, I didn't think I would be a comic, you know, but when you know guys like on that level, you're really drawn to it. You know,
0: talk about the first time you went up. Do you remember that?
2: I do. Yes. Um, first time I went up was in Harlem, Harlem, New York. Uh, and by the way, I've been to comedy has taken me to the other Harlem as well. The original Harlem in the Netherlands. Cool. Yeah, because Harlem is a, you know, uh, New York, oh, er- New Amsterdam's. A lot of a lot of things are named after Dutch places. All our
0: names are complete ripoffs. Right. Come on, right. like New New York. Like exactly. you can't come up with a whole new name like that's the, New that's Jersey. It. No, no. Right. I, oh,
2: that's sad. I've been to York been to York. Too. You've been York. Uh, OK,
0: <laughs> so
2: my first time on stage. Um, so. It was weird. I, I, I don't people don't know the full story. I had a summer job possibility out of Brooklyn um, in uh, in Seattle. Testing software for Microsoft. Right. Wow. And um, I just I just botched the interview. Like I think back, I know I answered one question wrong. My mom told me to send a thank you letter. I didn't. I could have because in the thank you letter, I could have been like, oh, I got that one question wrong. So I didn't get that summer job, but I had written down on a piece of paper like, "This is what I'm going to do this summer. I'm either going to work at Microsoft or I'm, I'm going to start doing stand-up comedy."
0: Oh, cool! Uh,
2: and Microsoft even flew me to Seattle. Like that was crazy. Um, so, so then I started. I, I was like, "How do I start comedy?" I was at a black uh, Black Business Expo. Like they, I don't know if they still do it, but it's like basically a showcase of black businesses. But it's more for you to, you know give them your, your business to, 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 to cater them or whatever. And uh, there was a comedy club there called the Uptown Comedy Club. And, you know, I walked over and said, how do you, how do you go on? You know? And they said, come by on a Wednesday. That's when we have our workshop. They were kind enough to have a little workshop for new comics. And then on a Sunday you can, you can go up. So basically I like, I I scouted it out for a few weeks. I went there on a Sunday checked out the show. I went to the Improv in New York. Um, And then, probably in two weeks, I went to the Uptown Comedy Club on a Wednesday, which was you had to do that. It was like a mandatory thing. They walked you through it. Then on Sunday, I went up. And the thing is, it was like um, I went up on the New Jack segment. So basically, it's not like the Apollo. It's not that crazy. But at the same time, the crowd is encouraged to express if they like you or if they don't like you.
1: Okay. Yeah. Those are nightmares that I have having to do one of those Apollo audiences. I don't know how you do it.
2: So what yeah, happened? So, well, you know what tends to happen is you do well your first time, right? Just your um, energy. Yeah. It's like um, in the cartoons when they step off a cliff and they don't fall <laughs> because, <laughs> because you know they don't know what gravity is yet, right? So, <laughs> so I did really well, um, and then the next show I bombed. And I tell people well, that's when you become a comic after you bomb. Hmm. Um, but it was a good bombing because I think the host of the show, I didn't realize, was behind me taunting me. And I think he did that because maybe he sensed the audience wasn't into it. And so he wanted to sort of like, you know, that's what some shows do. They'll disassociate them, themselves from you. Like, so that way. Like, it's like
0: high school, you know. Just yeah. figure out what side you're on so that you're on the winning side.
1: <laughs>
2: right. So that loss, that loss that you just took is not... Count doesn't count for a loss on the overall show, sure, which I, get, which I get. Um, but the first time out was was a blast, I did like two song parodies, and I remember uh-huh. like uh getting off stage and telling someone, um, such a ridiculous statement. I said, You know, I think I'll open up every show with a song parody, <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'm not it stuck to that, that
2: but. <laughs> Obviously that's not You know, I,
1: Seinfeld made a comment that I don't agree with, but you're talking about bombing, so I want to ask you. He said when you have a bad night, it's never the audience's fault. Do you agree with that?
2: Uh, I would say I would say that's a good way to look at it, but no, it's Yeah, for
1: self-preservation, but it's not true. Yeah.
2: I don't think it's true. I don't think it's true. I think you're that- into
1: one of those places with malfunctioning air conditioning, or there's just been a eulogy on stage. And there are circumstances <laughs> where you're digging yourself out of negative zero and there's nothing you can do. Bill Cosby for three and a half hours could not pull these people out of a funk. We've all had those.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, I think there's something to take from it, but I wouldn't say that it's never the audience's fault. I mean, Maybe he means in a sense that in that given that same situation, if you're putting that same put in that same situation again, maybe the next time you'll know what to do. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like I think, um, and that's why it's so important to listen to your sets, you know. And I, I tell newer comics who always ask, they always ask for advice. And my my standard stock advice, which it sounds kind of cheesy, but I say, record, record, and listen to every set mm-hmm. because if you if you do five sets and you listen to all five sets, it's like you've done 10 sets. So oh. we'll expedite your progress. And hmm. what I learned by listening to sets is that um, you never killed as hard as you think and you never bombed as hard as you
0: think. <laughs> wow.
2: You know, like I've, every time I listen to a set, when I'm, sometimes I, I'll, like if I didn't like it, I didn't like the set, I'm like, oh, I can't even listen to this. And I force myself to listen to it. And then I'm, I'm like, okay. It wasn't great, but it was fine. Other times, I'm like, oh, that was amazing. Let me listen to it. And then I'm like, uh, okay, it was good. So so much of what is happening is based on what you think is happening.
1: The bad nights last a lot longer than the good nights, too. That's the trouble.
2: Right. You said the bad nights last a lot longer. The the, the
1: bad nights sting a lot longer than the good nights feel good.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) um, But sometimes you have to, like, I think with a good set, I might listen to it and keep it. A bad set, I listen once and I erase it.
0: Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So there's a, there's always something to learn. Sometimes you don't remember an ad lib and recording, or you tag something, just like instinctively tag something. And so right. recording it, you know, captures that. You're off stage, you've got the adrenaline. You're like, oh, what was that thing I said? And it really worked. And then, you you know you're in the car on the way home, you don't don't remember what it was.
2: Exactly. And it's always good to listen as close to the set as possible. But I've found that sometimes if I listen to a set I did four years ago, that's a really interesting experience too. Mm -hmm. Wow. You're listening and you're like talking to your form. You are talking like, Present Dwayne is talking to past Dwayne.
0: Yeah, you're like, like, why don't I do that joke anymore?
2: Right, right. <laughs> or, or why were you going so fast? Why were you going so slow? What was? Uh. Um, and what I find too is, there's when I get off stage, it's always like, it's almost like a story, right? There's like, there's his side, his like one person's side, the other person's side, and the truth. Same thing. <laughs> with same thing. I said it. Like, what you thought was happening versus what was happening. And it's uh, when you listen, you can begin to reconcile those two things. Yeah,
0: it could also be informed by how sensitive the mic is on your recorder and where you placed it. Like, if you, yeah. did you put your notes on top of the recording machine, right, <laughs> or did you right. use your? I guess you just use your phone now to record stuff, right?
2: I do, I do, I do, and it's weird. I just found one of my old uh, tape recorders. Like, I started with micro tapes. Yeah. Then I went to MP3 recorders. Now it's just it's just my phone,
0: so.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let me so ask now, you a question. Oh, I'm go ahead, Lizzie.
0: No, no. You ask a question because one, when, when you're done with your question, if it is about stand up, I'm going to move to uh, his zombie book.
1: Oh, great. I just want to ask him one more thing about stand up. Yeah. You, I, I think one of the funniest pieces of material in your dry bar set was talking about going whitewater rafting in New Zealand. Oh, yeah. And it's just a beautifully written piece of material. But I want to ask you, were you over there on vacation or were you performing over there as well?
2: Uh, you know, I was performing in Australia. Had okay, that's,
1: that's why I brought it up, because you yeah. mentioned Franklin Ajay, who yeah. I've known for years and been a friend of for 35 years. He loves performing in Australia so much that I guess he goes over there like six months a year. He's got a house over there and it's such a rich comedy environment, which it seems so interesting to me with the cultural differences and everything, but he loves it over there. And he's been doing that for years.
2: Yeah. Australia is a really interesting place. I've been there twice and both times I was there for like three weeks to a month, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, I liked it both times, but I left the first time I went. I left thinking I could not I I, I left thinking, oh, this is great. I'll come back. I don't think I could live here. The second time I left thinking I could live here, you know? Yeah. Um, It's sort of like it's so it's similar to America. You know, I guess it's kind of like maybe what America would be if we had stayed under English rule another (laughs) 50 to 100 years.
0: (laughs) Pretty much. Pretty much. And we're a little more tropical.
2: Right, right, exactly, exactly. But you have
1: and, to did you have to change any of your cultural stuff for it to make sense over there?
2: Uh a little, not too much because you know, our our culture and our movies and everything just everyone gets our stuff basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I chat I call the elevator, the lift and then mm-hmm. um, which I like that because it's only one syllable. And then when I come back, I have to go back to elevator because I have a joke about being in an elevator and it's just a uh,
1: we- you're wasting time yeah four syllables, syllables. <laughs> it's ridiculous right. i don't have that right. kind of time
2: <laughs> but yeah but australia great it's 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 i will say this before you go on louise it's not as um it's it's not as like uh out there as you thought like you think australia you think of like the guys being like these wild these like really strong wilderness kind of guys
1: crocodile and, dundee
2: yeah crocodile dundee and and Or you think it might be a a wee bit lawless because of um, the history of Australia being a place where they sent criminals. (laughs) But actually, I think because of that, it's way more regimented. Like things close early and like it's everyone's moving like they're late, but they're all on time. (laughs) You know, it's such a weird like if you go to a store, uh, like you go to a deli that closes at 6 p.m. Like, after five, you can't get anything.
0: (laughs) Wow. Winding
2: down. (laughs) Right, right. So everyone's sort of like, I was there in October, right, Fritz? And I was there in October, and they were having Christmas parties at at some of the shows. Just like, just to get it out of the way. You know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah, I can't wait to go there, but Franklin loves it. And I guess he's got a house and goes back, and somehow he's built his following down there yeah.
2: Yeah. I've heard that. And yeah, he's, he's big down there. And it's, it's really cool. I mean, the whole country, believe it or not, only 25 million people, you know, and it's basically yeah. the same size as the continental U S
0: yeah. Just no one lives in the middle because it's right. pretty, really dry. Um, so now you have written, you've written two books, Ch- hot chocolate for the mind, but both these you can find on Amazon. And the second book is called zombie run. And I'm reading the reviews and I'm reading, you know, what people are saying about the book. And so, what I learned something new. So apparently zombie lit is a thing and there are rules. So can you explain?
2: Um, Okay. My, uh, the guy I wrote this book with my friend Koji, Mm -hmm. he's uh, a long time collaborator. We've written many things together, usually more like comedy kind of things. Mm -hmm. So he's the zombie expert. Um, But I think, I think when you talk about zombie rules, I think it's sort of like you can pick a movie um, you can pick basically one. How do how do people become zombies? You have to sort of establish that. Okay. Um, how's it? How's it sort of um transferred, and how do they get out of their zombieism? Usually, it's death, but some movies have other ways that people can, you know, stop being zombies. So I hey, think. But t-
0: what is it different in every book or movie? How you become a zombie?
2: Yeah, kind of. I mean, okay. basically, you got the. Traditional zombies are people who are risen from the dead. Right. You also have the the virus kind of thing. Okay. You know, those are the two main um, tracks. This this book started as a, a movie idea that I had. Um, and I call it Zombie Run. Now, the book is so different than the movie idea, but I'm glad. I mean, Koji convinced me to, like, write a book with him instead. Um, so it's called, but we kept the title and basically zombie run. I got the idea in Toronto. Okay. I was in Toronto doing shows and a bunch of zombies ran by me. Right. And, <laughs> yeah, but it, what it was, it was like, it was like a 5k and it was but like, those uh, were just
0: Canadians. I don't right? <laughs>
2: you know. So it was a mm. 5k where people dressed as zombies okay. and I just, you know, most of the, Movie ideas I have a kind of high concept, so I thought, wouldn't it be crazy if like real zombies infiltrated this sort of like jokey zombie run? Mm-hmm. Because then no one would be able to tell who the real zombies are versus sure. fake. And so our book is completely not about that, but it is called Zombie Run, and basically the history when we when we meet the two characters, Hanson and Alicia, they um, the Zombie Run has already happened. So basically the book starts 10 years or five or 10 years after there was a zombie run in Queens. And that exactly is what happened. Real zombies infiltrated. Okay. And when we meet them 10 years later, um, basically Hansen is a human being f- pretending to be a zombie.
0: For the sake to- of survival.
2: For the yeah. sake of survival.
0: Yeah.
2: Alicia's doing the same thing, except she's aware that other humans exist and they meet in secret. Hansen does not know. He doesn't know other humans exist at all. And so it's. we took some liberties. Like, basically, the zombies go back to work. Um, we created a world where it's set in the future. Everything is automated. Like, trains just run. They don't need, you know, energy is cheap. Trains run. They, they stop at every stop. So when we become zombies, everything is still doing what it does. Mm-hmm. And after... Um, after everyone's a zombie and the zombies don't know that anyone else exists, they all just go back to work. So basically whatever you were doing the last day of your human life, you kind of do it, but you don't really do it. So like basically they go to work and they just kind of go like this on the keyboard, you know, it's, uh, (laughs)
0: they're
2: pretending in essence. So, um, zombies have the sort of mental capacity of a two or three year old. Oh, and so, now, at the same time, if you, if they spot a human being, they they go full scary zombie. So that's why Hansen, our our hero, he doesn't he has to go back. He has to go to work because other than if he doesn't, he'll be sort of figured out. Um, and when we meet him, he's he's had it up to here. He's like, he figures I'm the only human being left. I should just take my own life. Um, but he has a funny suspicion that this one girl he saw he's seeing is not a zombie and she's like him and he doesn't know how to figure that out eventually they they find each other and they find that they're both not zombies and then she introduces him to this whole other world of human beings we call them the one percenters
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, so kind of I mean,
0: underground
2: underground right yeah and so basically it's a whole year from one zombie run to another zombie run because oh cool the zombie runs still happen yeah, keep doing them as zombies. So it's it's tradition, like, you know. Yeah, you we know. took a little. Li- we took some liberties, um, but the good thing about it is, um, Koji and I both got busy. But this book is intended to be the second book in a series. So there's like the first book of really fleshing out how they became zombies and all of that stuff, and then the next book to figure out, you know, how the how can a human beings win, and I don't want to give. So- all-
0: I assume there's a lot of metaphors involved, but how do you explain the popularity of zombie lore?
2: Um, You know, Koji is so great at fielding this question, but I am kind of okay because of him. Like, I think what it is is that um, when people feel a sense of, like, people feel like they're not connected or they've lost control, Mm -hmm. I think those represent spikes in zombie lore and people sort of like being, you know, um, infatuated with all things zombie. And I think in our current sort of situation, I just think, yeah, people feel not as connected. And I think people feel like zombies already. And so the zombie experience kind of describes what people are feeling and we, we play with that too. So basically, you know, zombies love looking at their phones um, in our book Uh, zombies laugh when other people are laughing so um, these are little tricks that you can do to you know escape becoming a zombie knowing how they behave Mm. Uh, and I think I just think right now we're more connected than ever but at the same time we're like the least connected we've ever been so I think Mm -hmm. that's all that plays a role in people being infatuated with with uh, zombieism
0: Fascinating.
1: It's either zombies or QAnon. I'll go with zombies.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I heard you guys talk about QAnon too. That was really cool how you broke it down.
0: I'm obsessed with QAnon. So I watched over the weekend. I didn't put this in my my recommendations today because I had so many lined up already. But there's a Vice three-part special on QAnon. Um, you know, which you can find. And and my husband and I binged the whole thing. We were just going to watch the first episode. And I was like, no, well, I have to know more. So because apparently like uh, Mike Flynn is involved at the, at the highest levels. Oh, my God. So it's oh. like maybe start to some kind of LARP, like like uh, like a live action role play, but it's like really not a usual LARP where everyone's in on it. It's a LARP where only the guy, Pretending to be like high-level clearance is in on it, right. and he starts right. manipulating all these people, and it t- and it catches fire, and that's when the high-level people want in, and they and that's what I think happened.
1: You know, but I'll tell it. you, I, I I I don't you know, I I I don't have my brain's not big enough to wrap my head around this, but I think it's this guy who maybe works at H and R Block. <laughs> <laughs> and at night he goes and, and he does what he does what Dwayne does and his writing partner said what kind of a scenario how out there can we make a scenario and still get people to believe it in it? How about if we pose all Democrats as Satan worshipping pedophile um uh, baby drinkers? Baby baby drinkers. How about that? It's not just one uh, absurd idea. It's three packed into one. And people buy this. It just defies um, logic. I, I don't it doesn't get does actually,
0: it. Fritz, because here's the thing. If these people have just gone through their lives like, I hate these kind of people, I hate these kind of people, and I right. hate these kind of people, and I don't want to have to apologize for it. But, you know, I guess I can't say that at the garden party or whatever, because it's not PC. And then all of a sudden someone says, oh, no, not only is it OK to hate those people, you have to if you want to be a patriot, because those people are eating babies.
1: Yeah, well, right there is where I hit the wall going 90 miles an hour. Well, But well, I mean, well, when you, you, reason not only take are you given
0: them permission <laughs> to be a racist, you're telling them it's their patriotic duty.
1: Yeah, well, I'm still that—that that, I can't suspend my disbelief long enough to buy into that. I, I just try to tell believe. you how it happens. Oh, okay. Well,
2: okay. well, it becomes just, a thing of like, um, and anything—if you say anything against it, then they've gotten to you, you know. So, like, <laughs>
0: oh, okay, mm-hmm. yeah. Now we're talking about it. Yes. Yeah, so they win. I get oh, it. Yeah. Yeah.
2: No, no. What I mean is, what I mean is, you can't disprove it because, like, even oh, you if, can't
0: prove a negative. Sure.
2: Right, right. So if a Republican who's against it people go oh they must have gotten to him you know he's a part of it now or whatever the case right it's that's yeah, you can't prove it yeah it,
1: but it's the Nostradamus theory how far down the road can you kick these proclamations that don't come true to till people go you know this is bullshit how can we how, how can you know Nostradamus was wrong about the end of the earth every 100 years for 3000 years I, when, when do people say, you know, I I have some questions about this.
0: He only has to be right once.
1: Yeah, well, he ain't been right so far. And when do you lose interest? I, no, I know. I,
0: you know, there's. Yeah.
1: And anyway.
2: It's one of those things where we have babies. I mean, I know we're a first world country, quote unquote, or whatever. But every baby I know is with their parent 24 hours a day. And so that means the only babies they they could be eating are some kind of third world babies.
0: <laughs> right. They and, may be eating. That's like, interesting. They could be eating zombie babies.
2: Yeah, there you go. <laughs>
0: because all the zombies act like babies anyway, as you just so, told us. Well, right. I, I don't know why they're not talking about like, oh, this child has gone missing or this or, you know, maybe they are. I, I, I don't know. I don't. I mean, I'm not interested enough to go to any of these message boards, but I do find things like Scientology and just religion, the origin of any kind of belief system or ideology that's deeply felt and uh, it, and is fascinating to me, like how the human mind works, what gets you through the day, uh, what? But what
1: all those things have in common, and you're exactly right, Scientology, you know, fringe religions, but all of those things in order to get traction have to have a modicum of truth. There has to be one or two elements that draw you in saying this might be true, but the whole QAnon thing is so outrageous. There's no sort of uh, lily pad of reality you can step on uh, to, to, to get into the rest of it. It's just mind-blowing
2: yeah, really, it really is. Um, You know, um, Kathleen Madigan has a great joke. I don't want to butcher it. But she said something her. about her dad was talking about Mormons. And, she, you know, she pointed out, well, you know, they have their beliefs, just like, you know, Christians believe this, that, and the third. And so she compared it. And she's, like, she was like, what makes it better than Christianity? They, Christianity has all these kind of weird beliefs. And he said, yeah, but Christianity started before television. So... <laughs> This That's is so, interesting. It's so funny that, yeah, it's sort of like, you know, we weren't around when, you know, the other major religions started. Um, and, and it's, you know, I think we accept, some of us accept it, like, as absolute truth. Some of us accept it as, okay, this is sort of a general way to live and treat mm-hmm. people, right. that kind of thing. Um, but when you see a whole new religion or fringe thing, start right before your eyes, and it's right. like
1: crazy. Yeah,
0: it's like, it's yeah. like, the difference between a textualist and a, what's the other thing with the
1: originalist,
0: originalist and a textualist, like, well, all right. So what I get, these are parables and these, these are, you know, like Aesop's fables. These are lessons to live by. And but maybe this didn't exactly happen. And then there are people that just like actually literally believe that everything in the Bible is the, the absolute, gospel which i guess yeah. is a term that originates with the bible correct you know the gospel of right, mark right. the gospel of luke so uh, you know the word gospel means like oh if mark wrote it down it must have happened even though all of their gospels are slightly different correct and they're all yeah, like the 300
1: story. years after the death of christ right And none of these... them
0: none of them were his his apostles none of them mm-hmm. were the guys that hung out with him they were all guys that just heard about him and a lot of people think that they they were written by the guys that hung out with him and they they actually weren't the religion kind of takes a few hundred years to bubble and you know take hold so yeah all that stuff is i always at easter i always watch all the history specials about jesus because i'm i just i'm just fascinated by how why we believe what we believe and what matters to us and why i
1: think and the story uh, of him was bent in, for political reasons too, Constantine wanted to make yeah. Christianity the the religion of the Roman Empire, but he didn't like all of it. For instance, they completely subjugated the role of women, and all these things are twisted for the uh, desires of history.
0: The, the best The best part is, or my favorite part is that Christianity starts out as a as a version of Judaism, where you're Jews, but you believe that the Messiah has in fact come it's so like okay you're jew you're jesus was a jew and uh all of the people who followed jesus were jews and the people who believe that jesus is the, the son of god or They the call him rabbi too. Right. And so they they just believe well, we're jews but we just believe that the messiah has come. And so it was hard for them to sell their religion because it, you they were first pagans like all over the roman empire they were pagans. So in order to become a christian you had to first become a jew which meant you had to get circumcised. So they oh, were wow. like they had a meeting and they were like you know in the brochure, this isn't selling. And I I would like to, to propose that maybe, you know, we're not part of Judaism. We're our own thing. And then, you know, you can keep down there however it was. And, like, people are like, sign me up. I, you, you, that's good. I like the new terms. So, yeah, there's all kinds of interesting stuff to read about. But, Dwayne, I want to get back to you for a moment. Tell us yeah. where folks can find you online and what you would like for folks to – learn and discover if they're going down your media path.
2: Um, yeah. I'm, I'm Dwayne Perkins on Instagram. That's uh, D-W-A-Y-N-E, Perkins. Uh, Funny DP on Twitter. Um, Dwayne Perkins on YouTube. I'm mostly active on uh, Instagram. And then I kind of funnel that into uh, Facebook and Twitter. Um, yeah, my book, Hot Chocolate for the Mind, is on Amazon, as is my um, book, Zombie Run uh also um people can uh listen to my stuff on like you know your spotify's and things like that or satellite radio um so and my specials i have two dry bar specials at this point and one special called take note that's currently streaming so um people can sort of uh, and and i'm in the content race like everyone else so i'm also putting out little videos and things like that on my instagram So. follow me there i think it'll be a good place if they're on instagram follow me there on facebook it's a good place to sort of stay uh keep abreast with all i got all i have going on
0: excellent
1: you're a really talented person yes i really i i I thank you I think we're going to be hearing a lot about you for a long time
2: thank you i hope so as are you as are you and uh i'm loving the hair it's so nice oh my god i'm marveling at it it's really nice
0: yeah it's a thing of beauty all yes. right, here come the closing credits. We would love for you to join us online on Instagram and Twitter where we are at Media Path Pod and on Facebook where we are Media Path Podcast. You can find full episodes with all kinds of bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, Media Path Podcast. We would love to know what media you have been enjoying, so you can contact us at our social media or email us at Path Podcast at gmail.com. I want to thank our guest, Dwayne Perkins. So thank you so much for joining us. Our team includes Dina Friedman, Francesco Demanda, John Maddox, Sharon Bellio, Bill Filippiak, Thomas Hubble, Alex Gilroy, and you. I am Louise Palanker here with Fritz Coleman, and we will see you along the media path.